So I got this wine club called Viticole, which is basically a giant excuse for me to travel around the world and collaborate with some really freaking inspirational winemakers. While I'm at it, I figure why not mic them up and see what happens. My name is Brian McClintock, and this is the Viticole Wine Podcast. I'm not going to lie, we went deep in part two, like full rabbit hole deep. Literally, I was editing this podcast, and all I could hear was Denzel's voice in the movie Training Day. The shit's chess, it ain't checkers. Denzel Washington, ladies and gentlemen. Now, to my knowledge, Sashi Mormon is not a corrupt cop. I haven't fact-checked that, but I think we're good. What he does do is attack wine at a very high level. Chess is all about an endgame. You want to take a hard look at the Gamay grape here in the States? There's no game. We're just setting up the board, basically. So the conversation about Oregon Gamay was all zoom out. Big picture. Strategy. Positioning. I think if you're a proprietor looking to plant a vineyard or part of a vineyard team or a casual observer who wants to get a feel for the landscape of wine in Oregon and California. So many teachable moments. Sashi picks apart wine styles, the modern collector, tips for building a personal cellar on a budget, and then about two-thirds in, like minute 30-ish, we finally zoom in on Eveningland's process with Gamay, and the shit gets hardcore. If you are new to the wine world, you are going to hear words like Saccharomyces, Thermal Dynamics, Pied de Couve. Yeah, I feel your pain. Suck it up, take it on the chin. Like any foreign language, you immerse yourself in it long enough, and it all just starts to coalesce and make sense. Shall we dive in? Let's dive in. So the current Evening Land team at large, it's kind of like a a three-headed monster in a way. So we got you and your spirit animal, Raj. And (laughs) let's talk about Ben for a second. Yeah. So Ben, so time consigliere, can we say that? If you guys are the Godfather. <laughs> well, so in my mind, there are some people that like to say that you know, in the French language, there's no word for winemaker. There's vigneron, but that means someone who takes care of vines. There's no word for winemaker, um, and thankfully we have one. <laughs> <laughs> so, what's interesting to me about that is that it's. Is, I think some people have interpreted that as, well, no, they, in, in the French wine culture, they don't believe in making the wine. You know, the vineyard makes the wine. I, it, I think it's much more that it, it literally wasn't a job. Like, because when you make wine, um, you know, you, if you are a small domain, you have a vineyard, someone who takes care of the vineyards for you. And at harvest, the family comes and you, you talk to, you know, the Dujacs or the Dimontis. I mean, they all, they all lived in Dijon and Paris. And they would come at harvest time. They would all come and they would all help make the wine and it would be this great time. And there were obviously employees of the domain, but they were people to help tend the vines, do some work in the cellar. But then everyone would participate in the harvest. They would make the wine. They'd put everything in a barrel. Then everyone would go away. And then, you know, they would come on the weekends to do some things like topping and then maybe some bottling. Very some communal. Very communal. And, and not really like there wasn't like this job of winemaker. Because when you think about 
what the job like if I was to say well who's a winemaker in the United States well you know like our friend Aaron Jordan winemaker well is Aaron Jordan really a winemaker I would say that Aaron Jordan is probably more of a proprietor I mean certainly he participates in the making of the wines at Bela and certainly Raj and I participate in the making of the wines at Demilo Code evening on Sandy but we spend a lot of our time promoting the wines it's just it's it's you don't get to make wine if you don't sell the wine. <laughs> and so um, we've developed a very interesting kind of sub-organization uh, that both John and Ben and uh, this guy Julian um, are a part of. And they represent the true kind of winemaking team. Um, there's a lot of cross-pollination and communication. So Ben comes down here. John goes up to Oregon. Uh, and they're the team that really takes care of the winery. So they participate the heaviest during harvest. They participate in the, in the winemaking process throughout the whole year. Um, you know, Raj and I are uh, present for, for all of the, the, I would say, you know, critical decisions. If we have to make a triage, you know, if we have to cut some barrels out of a cuvee, that's something that we participate in, obviously, during harvest. We participate heavily in when the grapes are harvested. I mean, that's that's kind of a big thing for me. I, I like to to I like to make those decisions because they're very important to how the wine's going to turn out. And then you know, Raj really loves to participate in just that the extraction, making sure that you know the wines are pressed um, and they are fermented the way he wants to have that elegance in the wines. But then once everything is barreled down, our job is to go back out there and, and, and show people the wines and make people more familiar with the appellation of the Olamde Hills and the appellation of Santa Rita Hills, help people understand what, why delicate, elegant, you know, perfumed wines are, are just as important as, you know, heavy, extracted, powerful, opulent wines. What is it about the process? Because you're right, there's so much involved in a winery project. Um, from the vineyard all the way to, you know, dragging the bag. Yeah. Um, <laughs> what what part of it do you enjoy the most? What gives you the uh, most satisfaction? For sure, I think, for sure for me, it's it's planting new vineyards. So at Domaine Lacote, you know, I planted that in 2007. We started with 20 acres, and today we have 65. And I, I really feel like, for a long time, it was like whatever David Abreu did, mm-hmm. everybody else in California did, if you're trying to, you know, grow great grapes. And, you know, David Abrams growing Cabernet in Napa Valley. It has nothing to do with Pinot Noir in the west side of Santa Rita Hills. And so we've had to change a lot of what we initially thought was how to grow grapes. And, and understanding how to correctly grow the grapes helps you understand how to correctly plant the vineyards. Mm-hmm. Um, so the whole process for me, site selection, how to, you know, how to build the infrastructure, what rootstock, what scion wood, how high the canopy's going to be, what kind of tractors you're going to use. You like the, making babies. <laughs> that, because that to me is uniquely um, uh, interesting. The, the other part that I really enjoy is the, is, the, is the teamwork. because And that's very much like a restaurant. You know, you need people who grow the grapes. You need people who are participating in that farming, all the field workers. You need the people in the cellar who are managing all of the operations from 
fermentation and racking to bottling, warehousing, all that stuff. And then you need the people who are out there selling the wine. And, and I, I think that selling the wine, a lot of it is not fun, but there are parts of it that are maybe the most fun, that there are these new terroirs to be discovered. Oregon has, you know, even though, you know, Irie and Ponzi, you know, Adelsheim, all these pioneers made all these great wines, there's still so much more to be done in Oregon in terms of wines and styles. I, I still believe that there are probably many, many more Appalachians to be discovered in Oregon. I, I think that has only just started. So what the Oregon wine industry is going to look like in 50 years is going to be very different than what it looks like now. And to me, so, that's super fascinating. Super fascinating, the direction of where it's all going. Oh, I mean... It's, it's almost like it's the West Coast. Let's look at the West Coast and figure out... Because we, we've hyper-focused so much. You know, yeah. Everything starts with Napa, yeah. becomes so popular. It's all about Napa Cab, Napa this. And we see all these other regions. We're trying to find ourselves. All these other regions emerging. Let's look at... Let's fly over from Washington on down. Look yeah. at this West Coast and say, what can we put where? Oh, I, I think there's... And, 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 you know, that work will be done. Once again, it'll be... A lot of pioneers, um, and it's that's very difficult. It's very hard to champion uh, a new growing area, especially with economic issues, yeah. right? Especially it, California. It, it's it, it, it's very difficult. But you know, you've got um, you know, like guys like Nate Reddy over in, in yeah. Hood River doing doing super interesting things, and I, I I just think that 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 in California, maybe I don't think we've we've reached our uh, potential of Appalachians. I think there are plenty more Appalachians to be discovered, but I think we're 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 getting full. Um, you know, we've we've explored the Sierra foothills, Amador County. We've explored the coast in terms of Santa Cruz Mountains and Santa Lucia, Monterey, all the way down here, Paso and um, and Santa Rita Hills. There's even wine being produced, you know, in San Diego. Um, so I, I think. California has been, um, there's been a lot of work done in terms of discovering exciting, interesting new places to grow grapes. I think Oregon, honestly, there's, there's the same potential. It's just the wine industry there is smaller and it needs time to grow and flourish. And yeah, I mean, there's probably amazing sites in the Cascades. How cheap is the land still? Oh yeah. And you don't, you know, typically if you're, I mean, the Willamette Valley, I think, um, uh, arrived on the scene first just like same reason why Napa Valley arrived first on the scene they're just really really gifted places to grow grapes like it, the challenges are fewer but if you're willing to accept more challenges more difficult conditions to potentially achieve more distinctive wines you're going to start to go on to the boundaries right I don't think anyone would say it right now the Napa Valley is an Appalachian where you really push boundaries. It's more of a, it's a very blue chip classic place to grow Cabernet Sauvignon, Merlot, Cabernet Franc, and, you know, a little bit of other varieties, obviously. But it's, it, it has a very firm identity. Mm-hmm. Um, you can see now in California, as you go onto the margins, that's where people are, are, are still trying to help 
you know, push the conversation forward in identifying those identities. You know, like, for instance, where we're making wine, Santa Rita Hills and the Eolamity Hills, I think we're, we're still in the early stages of saying, well, what I, I would like one day for someone to put their nose into a glass of Santa Rita Hills Pinot Noir from any, from more than half of the producers here and say, that's definitely from Santa Rita Hills. Same thing for people to do that. More than half the wines they taste, they would be able to, if you're a wine professional, smell and be like, that's from the Eolamity Hills in Oregon. Um, just as a starting point. Then you can kind of say like, well, I prefer this wine over that wine. This wine's more concentration. This wine's more elegant, whatever it is that you like. But just that initial marker, right? I mean, like that to me is so important when tasting wines from anywhere in the world, when you have a great Chablis, it's first got to taste and smell like Chablis. Then you can get into whether it's great or whether it's okay, whether it's not your style, it's your style, whatever. We talked about regions. Let's talk about grapes for a second. Um, I actually kind of looked at the crop report for Gamay in California. Do you have any idea how many tons of Gamay were crushed I, in 2016? I don't. And it's, it's almost double from the year before. I believe that. 35 tons. For, for the, all of California? All of California Gamay Noir. 35 tons. So to give someone a reference point, there are That's plenty of producers, in, plenty of boutique producers in Beaujolais who produce far more Gamay than the entire <laughs> state of California. <laughs> so uh, we don't have a lot of a ref, reference point for Gamay no. pretty much anywhere, and it's not that much better in Oregon. How much Gamay would you say oh, is I was, in Oregon? I, it's very small. Um, you know, it's... I tried to look this up. I couldn't get accurate so, figures. So it, something that, I mean, part of... It was of, in the other category. Right. You know? <laughs> I think that part of, you know, part of wine culture is, you know, when we were talking about these kind of identity of Appalachians, right, that... So in order for that to be, really happen, the community has to coalesce, right? So the wine producers have to be friendly enough with each other and um, be like-minded enough and be cooperative enough to say, yeah, having a common identity is, should be the foundation of our, of our wines. That first and foremost, our wines should taste like they come from our Appalachian, and then we should have our individual um, qualities. And in Burgundy, they describe this as everybody is friends when they see each other in the vineyards. Now, the vineyards, are, there's no... There's no boundaries between the vineyards, so you're out there farming your grapes and you talk to your neighbor and you shoot the shit, but nobody is invited to anyone's cellars. Mm -hmm. <laughs> True. Right? So the way you make the wine is very personal. The way you grow the grapes is very communal because you're trying to create an identity for your appellation. Great varieties are part of that identity, obviously. So I think that what happens in the beginning is when Joe Schmo decides to plant a vineyard, he looks at these crop reports, and he also looks at what prices you're getting for grapes. And if Gamay's average price in California as a grower is $1,500 a ton, and Pinot Noir is $4,500 a ton... What are you going to plant? It's not much of a discussion, right? It only, it only starts when a group of winery owners, and ideally winery owners who also own vineyards, 
decide collectively that, you know, we actually stand a much better chance in the global marketplace having a unique and distinctive voice. And that might mean not going with the grape that you can sell as a grape commodity for the highest price. That might mean working with a grape that's a little bit more obscure. But that means that you produce a wine that is unique and therefore has a competitive advantage when you're selling. Are you seeing that happening? Well, I think there are... Yes and no. I, I think it... Like, let's take a grape variety like Zinfandel. I think now when you look at a guy, um, you know, like Morgan Peterson at Bedrock, really getting behind Zinfandel again in that way, I think that's, that's really strong. I think the next step, though, is you can't be a lone wolf. I mean, you have to form a consortium of other like-minded grape growers and winemakers who are also going to rally behind Zinfandel, but actually tie it to a place. Like, decide. Like, this is the absolute best place to grow Zinfandel. Like, mm-hmm. Zinfandel here is better than anywhere else, and there's going to be now a dozen producers all producing Zinfandel from this appellation, and that becomes a very strong voice in the market, right? So I think Sonoma Coast was able to do that with, with Pinot Noir. Um, but, yeah, are there areas in Oregon that could, like, that maybe aren't the best places to grow Pinot Noir that could become very, very strongly identified with Gamay? And there could be then a dozen producers who produce these beautiful Gamays, both very affordable and then a few kind of, you know, single vineyard uh, cuvées. That would be amazing. But it, it takes so much time because I think it's very difficult when you're just doing, trying to do it all by yourself. Well, it's interesting. Uh, you have some of the oldest Gamay vines, arguably the oldest in North America. What was Al thinking when he planted I think Gamay? someone gave him the vines, actually. I think that's what happened. Um, and he planted them um, kind of in a, you know, not a very interesting place on the estate. So I don't think he was taking it very seriously. Um, for us, I, I um, Gamay in Oregon is very late. Uh, tends to set a pretty good crop and tends to ripen a little bit more slowly than Pinot Noir. And so I think it wasn't popular for a long time because it often got caught in the rain and you just, you just didn't get the ripeness. Mm-hmm. But when you think about viticulture, right, all over the world, you think about how particularly like with white burgundy, the wines are not necessarily higher in alcohol than they have been, but they're definitely riper. <laughs> you know, they're less mineral, less, you know, acid-driven. They're much more round and, and opulent than they have been in the past. Chablis, same thing. I mean, those wines were not popular because they were so acidic for so long. Today, they're, they're, they're powerful, concentrated, almost in some cases, wines with fruit. And that has to do, I think, a lot with just farming. You know, farming, people, not only are are you getting more money for your wine, which means you can invest more money in your farming, which also means then you can plant better vineyards, 
So you're just achieving more and more ripeness because you have less rot in your vineyard, you have better photosynthesis, more efficient photosynthesis. And so in Oregon, those initial vineyards were not particularly planted very well. They were low density, lot, you know, oftentimes own rooted, so then suffering from phylloxera, so not healthy vines. Today, with so much more knowledge about farming, so much more knowledge about viticulture, able to get more money for your wine so you can really apply better farming to the vineyards. Today, I think you can make a strong case for not being worried about ripening gamay. But that's new. And, and so I think maybe, maybe we'll see more interest in it now because there'll be more confidence. We obviously have a lot to learn about gamay, but what have we learned about gamay? Does it have a future here? If so, what things have you learned as to its success because you're making tremendous gamay and to me 16 vintage is quite delicious for you guys so delicious let's let's discuss gamay I I think you know so uh, volcanic soils basalt it's soil flurry right okay so that's what we have in Oregon Um, so you have a you have a terroir that is not identical but but shares some similarities to one of the greatest Appalachians for Gamay in the world. You have a climate that I think is that is ideally suited for Gamay. You know, Gamay, and it has to do with the with the wine that you end up producing. So nobody, when I look for a great Gamay, I'm not looking for concentration. That's not really what I'm looking for, right? Like, you can find a lot of concentration in the 15 Beaujolais. Are those the greatest Beaujolais for me? No. Um, because to me, Beaujolais, great Beaujolais, great Gamay should be about freshness and energy. There should be enough concentration the wine has length, but it should be much more about it being just vibrant. And I think between the climate, the soils um, in Oregon, you could produce absolutely brilliant Gamay in that style, where you have freshness, energy, Vibrancy, you know, maybe you're not going to have these super concentrated wines because you're going to ask the vine to produce more grapes. I mean, that climate and those soils, you get really good yields. And so you're going to see a little bit less color in the wine. You're going to see a little bit less concentration of fruit. But that doesn't mean you can't have really compelling wines that have that freshness and elegance um, and length, but, you know, in, in a more, you know, uplifting style. Mm-hmm. And I think, yeah, no, but it's, it's not what most, most people don't go into the wine business. If you are a new entrepreneur in the wine business, that's not usually the style of wine you want to make. A lot of people who first get into the wine business, what they want to make is they want to make a concentrated wine that's going to last a hundred years. And it's rare it's rare to find individuals who want to get into the wine business to produce wines that, you know, are going to last maybe five to ten years. It's interesting. And you have both guards in, in, in Beaujolais. Yeah. We, we certainly, like, I think personally lean towards one guard over another. Yeah. I mean, there are those, like, 
very rustic built expressions of Gamay that are exalting and you, you have old Gamay from the 50s that holds up just yeah. as well as some burgundy and it's yeah. it's amazing yeah. certainly there are different crews that, are, that lend themselves more to that structure yeah. but there is that concentration of organic you know for lack of a better term natural guys that are making wine for the now and it very much suits them they're very much in the moment people and I think, you know, having conversations with LaPierre, we tasted some of his wines going back to 2007, and 2007 was incredibly fresh, so those wines age. And I'm like, I said to, to Mathieu, I said, hey, do you, do you, are you trying to make wine to age? He's like, no, but if it happens, great. Exactly. And I think that is, I, I, I think it just takes time for people to, um, it certainly has taken. I mean, I, I I would say that I'm on the same on the same arc. When I first got into the wine business, when I first started my my own first winery, which was Peter Sassi, mm-hmm. wines are like <laughs> super ripe and dense. They're delicious, but they are big wines, and they are aging very very well. They're aging like at a glacier's pace, and that's because you know I think in the beginning it's very easy to value power over everything else. Mm-hmm. It's only later that you begin to value things like elegance and a wine that can be just incredibly successful on release. In the and, moment you pop a cork. And everyone should drink it in the first couple of years. And because the good news is there's always another vintage. So you're not going to run out of the wine. I mean, you might run out of that vintage, but you're not going to run out of that um, appellation, that producer. You're just going to have more vintages going forward, and each vintage will have its own personality. And But that's a very different way to celebrate wine. I think that in America, we've been so conditioned by like the collector mentality. You know, you buy this really special bottle of wine, um, and it's expensive, and you age it for 20 years, and you open it on a special occasion. There's not the same, um, you know, I guess, you know, preference or uh, desire for just wines that are just delicious to drink every day um, for no special occasion because they're very affordable, but they deliver complexity and elegance and beauty, you know, in an enormously compelling way. Yeah, you're not going to be able to age the wine for 50 years, but it's not the point of the wine. Mm-hmm. And yet, asshole that I am, I look for both in the same <laughs> bottle of wine. And sometimes you get that. You no, know? So, sometimes, so, but yes. And I think that the, that's. Um, I think at, what's at really least something that'll, that'll go ten to fifteen years and become more interesting. Yeah. Doesn't have to go fifty. Doesn't you have know, to go fifty. Yeah, you're not going to be like, well, my kids will enjoy this. I, I think that, but that's that's. Uh, I think that's like one percent of the buying. Yeah. I think you have to really be. Um, very in love with wine to to seek out that, right? Mm-hmm. Those wines that have freshness and elegance but have enough concentration um, and enough structure that they're going to age well if they're cellared properly. I mean, these are like, the to me, these represent the most esoteric wines in the world. I think they're... But is what's esoteric slowly becoming what's fashionable? That's the point I'm trying to make because if we're starting to make energetic wines like that and those become in vogue, do suddenly there become levels of seriousness within what's essentially just pleasurable, non-fussy wine? 
Well, uh, I mean, it's probably been around for a long time because I think that, you know, recently we've been drinking. So as wine's gotten more and more expensive, I tell uh, my winemaking team because they're like, oh, God, how am I supposed to, like, collect wine when it's so expensive? And, you know, the thing is you should just buy really great village-level wines from good producers because, yes, when you're um, at a table and you have... You bring a bottle of 2014 Merceau. Everyone's going to be like, that's, you know, from Rouleau, for instance. Like, that's a special wine, but it's not, you know, his Perrier. Um, it's not Premier Cru. But you wait 10, 15 years, and that becomes a very, very special bottle of wine. Um, and so even in our experience, you know, for like me and Raj, when we're drinking a lot of older wines now, you know, we're drinking wines that, you know, like, for instance, like, recently we had Rostang's, you know, 91, just village-level Koroti. This is not a wine that he intended to live this long. Like, that was his entry-level wine. That's just, like, his village wine. I don't know how much he sold that for, but probably less than $20 out of the domain, for, you know, in France at the time, but... That wine is aged incredibly well, and it's totally beautiful. But that's like for the very experienced. I mean, I think when you're in a very experienced buyer, um, or <laughs> to, to to plug Viticle here for a second, if you have the ability to have a relationship with someone that you trust, who is going to turn you onto wine like that, writing you a check right now, <laughs> then. That, that's at the very high that, that, that's like just being a really smart buyer you know you're not sure you can buy the top you can buy DRC gonna age very very well from a great vintage we all know that right you can buy easy drinking wines from Beaujolais that don't cost you very much money those two things you don't need to be the most educated consumer to participate at those two ends of the market where it requires a lot more um, time and energy in terms of researching and tasting and education is that middle where you find wines that are um, still affordable but yeah have all the ability to age for a long time but because they're not super concentrated they're just there's not a huge demand for them because the people who don't know that much about wine skip over them because they're like, well, that's not like a super concentrated wine. That's not going to last. You know, Parker's not going to give it 98 points. Right. So collectors don't gobble it up. And so they're just, like you said, like Monnier was on closeout. I mean, the reason for that, that wine's going to age beautifully. The reason it's not, the reason it's still available is because no one, none of the critics are giving it a huge score. So it becomes like an insider's wine. It becomes a wine that if, if you know, if you've spent the time and money uh, to drink a lot of wine, educate yourself, then you can find those wines that are affordable that will age really, really well. But right. th- those are the hard wines to find. And, and I think that maybe now with, with, new, with a new economy where you have many micro-retailers right. who are allocating... <laughs> allocating these wines because they're never made in great quantities to a limited group, a limited audience, and the value is not necessarily in that one bottle of wine, but the value is in the relationship, right? Like, 
you have a you you spend your money because you value the relationship, not because you value the wine. Because you know that having that relationship, you're gonna be you're gonna experience and you're gonna learn about wines that would be very hard for you to do otherwise. Mm-hmm. Well, I feel like in every project I learn more and more, and certainly I have walking vineyards with you and being in the cellar. This was a really, really fun project. We put together a little special barrel selection of 16 Gamay. Maybe you can talk about that that vintage specifically and how many vintages have you guys made of Gamay? Uh, well, we, we took over in 14. Okay, so it's so, just been three. Yeah, and I think that, um, you know, Raj really spearheaded that program. Um, he, it, that was very, it was very special to him, and, and he participated very heavily in the, in the 14 vintage. I think that what I've learned viticulturally is that you know, we have very, two very distinctive blocks. We have the old vines, and we have a, a younger vine block. And the old vines have a lot of phylloxera. Um, and so we're doing our very, very best to really farm them kind of over the top to feed them and help them kind of live with the phylloxera because we don't, I'm not interested in pulling those vines out. Um, and so we're starting to take budwood from those vines, um, graft them onto phylloxera-resistant rootstock and interplant in the same vineyard so that we can slowly replace the vines, you know, basically vine by vine, one, you know, one at a time. And so over the period of that, the life of that vineyard, it will slowly change to grafted vines, but it won't be this, you know, strong kind of rip all the vines out and replant it. I, I right. really don't want to do that. And so I think what we've seen now is, a, is, is the very strong distinction between those two, those two blocks. And, you know, we're, the winery is always very, very excited to bring in the gamay from the old vines. So typically you'd separate old vine and young vine before. Did you, this, this vintage you combined, correct? Right. So typically they are separated. Um, it just happened. It just has to do with quantity if there's right. enough. Um, but you know, the gamay comes in at the end. It's usually the last thing we harvest. And so <clears throat> it kind of gets special treatment because, you know, the, the wave of Pinot Noir and Chardonnay has passed. And mm-hmm. so the, the, it, we don't make that much Gamay and so the winery team really really babies it and so it's, it's, it, it's a, it, I think it's, it works out so well because the vineyards are interesting obviously the terroir is, is very sympathetic to Gamay and the winery team has you know, just uh, an affection for it so you've talked about it from a viticulture standpoint. You know, volcanic soils obviously being very important to Beaujolais, working here as well for you. What in the cellar are you doing with Gamay? How you treat it? So it's it's very traditional. So it's it's a maceration carbonique, um, whole whole bunches. Uh, we do um, like with our Pinot Noirs, we add a little bit of Pied de Cuve. So you know, for every specific cuvee, we do an early harvest. Um, and those grapes are destemmed, and we allow the fermentation to happen in a cool environment, so we can be very careful, and make sure that we're really <clears throat> allowing the yeast to thrive and not not any bacteria. And then, when the rest of the block, the vineyard, is at the appropriate potential alcohol, we take that pied de cuve, we throw it in the bottom of the tank, 
and then we take all of the the remaining fruit from that vineyard and we put it on top and we do the fermentation that way. So the gamay um, is... And why do you do that? Because, so... <laughs> so tasting a lot of, you know, natural wines, um, you can see a lot of the challenges when you when you do a whole cluster fermentation, it's, it's impossible for it to be anaerobic because there's all this space in the tank. You know, you can try and sparge it with carbon dioxide, which we've done, um, but it, it, it's, it's virtually impossible. So if the fermentation doesn't start immediately, what ends up happening is you get um, this, you know, kind of chorus of microorganisms participating, you know, bacteria and yeast, wild yeasts of all kinds, and many strains of bacteria all you know, simultaneously starting to ferment sugars. And that, that leads to, in the best case scenario, it's like a great vintage of Metros. You have some VA, you have some Britannomyces, you obviously have the primary fermentation done by Saccharomyces, and it all kind of comes together in this magical balance. And it ends up producing a tremendously complex glass of wine. But it, that is, is very risky, and that's why there are other bottles of Metros that are, don't have that magical balance. They're, the VA is either very high, maybe there's more Britannomyces, um, and so that's an inherent risk that you take um, when you allow the fermentation to happen that way. So we don't want to, we don't add any sulfur, uh, when we ferment our grapes, we don't add any yeast. And so what we wanted to do is say, well, we, we really value, I think that when you have compelling terroir, you can be more um, aggressive about promoting the purity of the fruit. So if you don't have a compelling terroir, I think lots of Participation from multiple organisms can give you a lot of complexity. But if you have a great terroir, that means the fruit itself is going to be quite complex. And so you can take the option of being very, of focusing on the purity of the fruit. And if you want to focus on the purity of the fruit, you need to allow the yeast, Saccharomyces, to be the primary, you know, biological factor in the equation. And so by doing a Piedi Couve, you take the grapes, you don't sulfur them, you allow the natural yeast to begin the fermentation in a very controlled environment where the temperature is very cool. So bacteria are very sensitive to temperature. Yeast can flourish in cooler temperatures than bacteria can. So we can allow all the wild yeast to begin their fermentation, allow the population to grow while keeping the bacterial population very low. And then <clears throat> when the rest of the grapes are ready from the vineyard, we can put that pied de couve that population of yeast that we've been kind of babying in the cellar for, you know, five to seven days, put that in the bottom of the tank, put all the rest of the grapes on, and then we're fermenting with the same microbiology because that Pied comes from that vineyard. Um, but we've kind of like built a starter. Where'd you come up with that? Uh, it, very traditional. So, um, you know, I read about it. Um, you know, today we have, we have a lot of technology in the winery. So we have the ability to use glycol to cool and heat our tanks. And we have, you know, 
If you want to use commercial yeast, there's you know dozens of different strains of yeast to choose. But you're from. essentially inoculating with natural yeast. Yeah, and because of all of that, we've forgotten the way uh, traditionally vigneron would make wine, and so particularly in cooler climates like in Burgundy, in a very cool vintage, if you didn't do this, you would have a lot of problems because you would harvest all your grapes, even if you were destemming, and you would put them in your vat, and it would be the cellar would be cold, the grapes are cold, you didn't have glycol to heat the tanks. It, it could take 10 days for the fermentation to start, and at that point, you're having a lot of infection from a lot of other microorganisms, and you could really ruin the vintage, which is why a lot of cold vintages were, people didn't produce good wine. It wasn't because there was a lot of rot. Actually, cooler vintages, usually there's less rot um, because the rot spread by, you know, warm temperatures. So a lot of the times it happened was because of fermentation difficulties. So what some growers would do is they would take some of the grapes from the vineyard before they were going to harvest, and they would have a little bucket of grapes, and they would keep in their kitchen next to the fire where it was warm, and it would start fermenting because the temperature was correct. And then they would throw that, you know, pedicube means a foot of the tank. They would throw that into the bottom of the tank and they would throw the rest of the grapes in there and it would ferment the wine. And you can, you read about this in all the old books. I mean, they, a lot of the older growers did this. So it was, you know, it, it fits very nicely with kind of our, our preferences, right? We, I think Raj and I are very, um, uh, we feel very strongly about promoting kind of very traditional and classical ways of, of making wine, appreciating wine. And so, you know, kind of reinstituting the pied de coup was a very natural thing for us to do because it kind of fits in philosophically with everything else we like. And it's been super successful. Um, the wines... So have you done that for all three vintages? Um, no. So really start, we, we played around with it in 15, and then kind of 16, we adopted it throughout the whole program. And it's, well, we've seen, um, you know, maybe kind of less uh, <laughs> natural wine uh, aromas, uh, which, you know, like when you taste the, the 14s, um, they have a little bit more kind of wildness in the aroma. And the 16s, they have a little bit less of that, but the fruit is much more pure and more focused. And I think the, because we have good terroirs, we can do that. I, I, I've definitely seen where you're working with grapes from terroirs that are not that interesting, that if you really just focus on the fruit, you're kind of just focusing on just kind of just average fruit. So maybe it is way more interesting to have a more natural fermentation. I think the natural wine movement really started, if you think about it, a lot of those wines came from kind of lesser appellations mm -hmm. because they're fighting for um, distinction in the marketplace. And by letting the wines be more wild, they got people's attention because, but if they were to make them with, if they were to, if they were to make them in a very conventional winemaking fashion with sulfur and commercial yeast, commercial bacteria, I'm sure you and I would taste the wine and be like, it's kind of boring. Yeah, and there's some bubblegum and banana. That's where that's coming from. Yeah, you know, it's just not... And so by letting it be more natural, they're actually making a more complex wine, which mm -hmm. we're responding to more positively. But when you have great terroir, I don't think you need to do that. I think when you have great fruit, that fruit already has a lot of complexity. 
in it, and so you can just zero in on it. Mm-hmm. Now, in terms of uh, fermentation vessel, what are you using? Uh, so all the, the so in Oregon, it's 50% wood vats, 50% concrete, of which we don't use any heating or cooling. We actually have those capabilities in Oregon, but we never use them. Here um, in California, we use almost exclusively concrete. We have some oak vats, we have a few stainless vats, but we use mostly concrete, and none of them have any heating or cooling. And why have you used wood in Oregon? Uh, it's, it was from the previous winemaking regime. Um, they bought a bunch of oak tanks. It's interesting, the, of all the vessels, stainless, oak, concrete, um, for me, and it's all about finding the, the correct kind of thermal dynamics, the way we make wine, um, concrete works the best. And that's because, particularly with the pied de cuve, you have a very um, steep spike in temperature. Because when you add the grapes, and because you, you already have this starter, the population of yeast that you're starting with is big. And um, it really takes over the fermentation, and the fermentation is very fast and rapid, and so you get this huge heat spike. And concrete's really good at absorbing heat. So the fermentation never gets too hot in concrete. Versus in oak, in wood, it always overheats. So maybe if you're using commercial yeast, or maybe if your cellars were much cooler, like you know, pre-global warming in Burgundy, right. oak fats are probably very, very good because you're able to hold the heat in more. Um, and you're able to get those temperatures. And then stainless is, stainless is the worst for temperature control because uh, you know, it's metal and so it's a conductor. It, it, yeah, it radiates that heat straight out. So you really need some kind of jacket or some way of, of, of heating and cooling the tank. And that's why we kind of moved away from those because to us that was, it, 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 didn't, seem, it didn't seem like a natural way. I mean, with the concrete, you know, everything about the concrete tanks, the, the, the width of the walls, the capacity of the tank, the ratio in terms of height and width are all very carefully chosen so that we get that perfect fermentation curve. And how do you equate those vessels to the actual texture of the wine, the texture of the finished wine? How does that, for someone who's tasting it, do you taste? I, I think the concrete probably gives you something, um, but I think it has more to do with the, you know... How it the way transitions. The, the way the concrete... So when the grapes start fermenting, the concrete is really good at being a heat sink, so it absorbs that heat, <clears throat> and that prevents the fermentation from getting too hot. But then as that fermentation tapers off, as that, as that sugar is all consumed, the tank is very warm. The, the actual concrete gets warm, and it radiates that heat back into the must, and so we're able to do kind of extended macerations that, where you don't see the temperature just fall off like you do in a stainless tank. Um, and I think that contributes a lot to the, to the way the finished wine is. Um, but there's probably, I'm sure there is a sensory and, you know, aromatic and flavor profile that comes from actually the physical concrete because none of our concrete tanks are lined. So they are, they're just, we're fermenting just on raw concrete. Wrapping up, uh, future of Gamay, where would you like to see it go? Uh, Thoughts? 
I, I think that gaming will have a hard time in California because of land prices. I think that, you know, farming, the, the, the development of a vineyard, planting a vineyard, the labor involved in farming vineyards in California, and then just the, the cost of the raw land makes it in any of the coastal areas, because coastal areas all have, happen to also be where people like to live in California. So you're kind of competing with homes. Um, I, I, I think that it will be difficult for Gamay to get, a, for there to be an appellation that really focuses on Gamay. I think you'll find pockets. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of Pinot Noir producers will begin having four or five acres of Gamay in their estate because it's a really nice wine to have in the portfolio. You know, you start off with some delicious Gamay and then you have some of your, you know, more, you know, your Pinot Noirs and your Chardonnays. So I think you will start to see Gamay come into a lot of wine programs as like a smaller cuvee, but not the main focus. In Oregon, I think there is more potential for... um, and, and maybe what will happen is, you know, kind of like in Burgundy, we've seen a lot of domains start to go and like buy things in Beaujolais, right? Because you can't buy any more vineyards uh, in, in Burgundy. And if you want to make more wine, your opportunity is either go to Jura or go down to Beaujolais or the Macon, buy Chardonnay or buy Gamay um, and produce more wine. And so I wouldn't be surprised in Oregon if maybe, you know, a small group of really good, really good wineries decides, hey, you know, there's this area that we think is going to potentially, you know, it's not a well-known appellation. So, you know, we're not going to be able to put Dundee Hills or Eolamity Hills on the label, <clears throat> but the soils are great. The climate is great. What if we like go down there and all plant, you know, 10 or 15 acres of Gamay, and we kind of started off on the right foot, meaning that, you know, nobody plants, <laughs> you know, Malvasia or Syrah or Riesling, you know, we try and try and keep a focus. And if, if we're able to do that, and that sounds like a really fun project, um, and then we can all come to market at the same time and really tout this, this new appellation with Gamay being kind of the standard bearer, that could be, that could be great. But I think it would take that kind of like collective consciousness. It would kind of, it would kind of require that um, a group of like-minded winemakers and vineyard owners to say, hey, let's let's go. You know, we'll all own our own separate vineyard, but let's go into this new region with this grape and and do something great and then promote it together. Well, I'm in. <laughs> Lastly, we, we did this, of course, was a collaboration. We did, we did a special barrel selection. Um, for, for some of our wine club members who want to know from the winemaker's mouth what, how long those wines will age, when mm. it's appropriate to drink, um, what would you say? Uh, I mean, I, I, you know, if you're lucky enough to get more than a bottle of it, <laughs> um, I don't know how many bottles they're going to get, but, um, you know, I, I was always taught that, um, when you buy wine, uh, even if it's an expensive wine, uh, when you get it, they get three bottles. They get three bottles. Okay, um, that you, you, you let it rest 
for a week or so in your cellar if you have one, and then you should drink it. Um, there's nothing worse than, um, and even if it's too early to drink the wine, you, you need to drink it as soon as possible from purchasing it. Because if you really, really like the wine, you want to go back and buy more. Because if you wait 10 years, if someone tells you, oh, wait 10 years to drink this wine, and then you drink it in 10 years, and you're like, wow, that was great, it's going to be very hard to find that wine in 10 years. So mm-hmm. I would say, yeah, you get your wine, you should crack the first bottle within the first week, enjoy it. If, you know, you could probably finish all three bottles before the end of the summer, but uh, it'll, it'll, it'll hold on for a number of years, for sure. But, it, you know, I think... It does become a personal thing. Where, where you like wine and its arc, it's part of why yes. I'll offer three of the same skews so people can try the wine in a different arc and figure out where they like wine, young, old, in the middle. That's the fun of it. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I, obviously, you know... Uh, I get so angry when I buy one bottle of a wine I love. <laughs> oh, that's the worst. Yeah. That's the worst. No, I mean, um, there's a reason I think wines were sold. There's a reason why it's 750 mils. There's a reason yeah. why there's 12 bottles in a case. Um, 750 mils just happens to be the perfect volume for two people to share. And 12 bottles... Or is, one person to share. <laughs> one person yeah. to share with themselves. Right. Um, or, and I think 12 bottles, if you can afford it, is the... It, because then you can follow that wine over the course of its life. Right. Well, it's been a pleasure having you, and... I have, have enjoyed many a case in your house before, my friend. I hope there's many more. So thanks for taking the time to, to be with us. Amazing. Take care, Sashi. Congratulations.